Before history is written, it's played. Before it's frozen in time, it's fought one shift at a time. Before it's etched in silver, it's carved in ice. What happens next will last forever. The Stanley Cup Final on ABC and ESPN Plus begins Saturday. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. Ready to get 30, 30, ready to get 30, ready to get 20, 20, 20, ready to get 20, 20, ready to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month. So give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Hello and welcome to the Bike Radar podcast, brought to you from the team behind Cycling Plus, MBUK and BikeRadar.com. Hello and welcome to the Bike Radar podcast. I'm Jack Luke and today I'm joined by good friend, confidant and all-round tech nerd Simon Von Bromley. How are you today, Simon? Yeah, really good. Thanks, Jack. It's nice to be doing a podcast here in person. Yeah, I know. So that's good. Um, We can blow kisses to each other through this Perspex screen. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, exactly. In a COVID safe way. Of course. Uh, Today, we're going to be going through the top stories on Bike Radar of 2021. We are going to be going through some of the most popular stories, but also picking out some of our personal highlights from what has been a rip-roaring year for bicycle tech content. So when you say personal highlights, you just mean like all of our work, right? Yeah, of course. I mean, that's... <laughs> if you're not proudest of your own work, Simon, then... Still time to get those page views in before the roundup at the end of the year, right? Exactly. We can, if we can increase our count, I'm sure we'll get a bonus based on how many page views our articles get. So. Of course. Uh, so actually on that note, Simon, what has been your favourite piece of content you've worked on this year? What are you most proud of? What's the best thing you've done this year? Well, we're going to come on to it, but I think my giant TCR long-term review was my favorite one, just because it was, you know, our, our most time with bikes, we only have them for a short period. And so that kind of limits what we can do with them. But with the TCR and uh, it being a long-term review, I had much more opportunity to do whatever I want, test it in loads of different ways, you know, change a few things. And um, obviously it was a great bike, but it also had a few things that you know, I kind of delved into in a bit more detail. And so, yeah, that was a, a really nice experience. Definitely was. And it was a good bit of content. I think for me, and this is a lovely segue into our top story of the year, my kind of highlight moment was in uh, kind of mid-June. I'd gone out for a really, really long ride 
with uh, Matthew Loveridge, now of Cyclist, and a good friend, Rich Bennett. And we'd done a truly sensational day out in uh, South Wales from Bristol. Amazing mixed kind of road and gravel ride, blazing hot sunshine, nice fizzy juices in the middle of nowhere. I mean, just absolutely wonderful. And I pulled into Cardiff Station and realized that the scoop of the century had landed in my inbox. And the photos that we had managed to get an exclusive first look at of the new Dura-Ace group set had landed. And I enjoyed a very, very fun evening working very late, overtired and a little bit sunburnt from my day out and got the biggest scoop of the year up. And that was our top story of 2021. That was the news that Shimano has finally gone to 12 speed with its Dura-Ace group set. And so far, it's also a DI2 only or electronic shifting only group set. Simon, we've talked about Dura-Ace quite a lot. What are your kind of headline thoughts on this very tasty and very expensive group set? You know, so I've used it briefly on um, a review bike. So when I reviewed the uh, Orbea Orca Aero recently, that had the new Dura Ace group set. And, you know, as you'd expect, like it is fantastic. Um, our, you know, previous previous colleague, Matthew Loveridge, sort of commented in his uh, first impressions that the front shifting was phenomenal. And it was kind of, you you know, Shimano is has always had impressive front shifting. So you were sort of thinking, well, how, how you know, how much better can mm. it really be? But it is genuinely, it is an improvement over the last generation, uh, which, which is impressive. And it's just kind of one of those things, one of the impressive things with DI2 and I suppose other, you know, other electronic drivetrains is that when, you know, you press the buttons and things, things just happen mm. kind of instantly. And so the front shifting is particularly impressive. You know, you don't have to back off the power or anything. At the rear, obviously, it's more, you know, refinement. Shimano quotes sort of, you know, percentage faster differences. But, you know, shifts were already very fast. It's very hard to tell. But it's nice that the... Uh, I think it's lovely that the cassettes are now larger. The, mm. It's a it's a long cage rear derailleur as standard, which you know is a first for a pro level group set. You know Shimano has never offered that at the Dura Ace level before, because you know real men use use really big gears <laughs> <laughs> until now. Um, so so yeah, like I, I haven't had a chance to uh, test the the new power meter option. But I believe that has all new internals. It's a new crank arm design, so there might be some improvements there potentially. We'll have to wait and see on that. We haven't had a review up yet, but I believe uh, our lovely Sam Chalice will be working on that. Yes, me and Sam have been fighting over who's going to get the jury race test bike, <laughs> but I think we've uh, decided he deserves it most for now. Actually, just just to go back on the front shifting, I mean, you say it's improved. I mean, how? Speed? Accuracy? What would you kind of say? I think the kind of speed of it has improved. Yeah, it just so when you press the button, it just feels like it instantaneously mm. shifts up into the big ring or down. And it's kind of like it's almost reaching the point where it's as good as rear shifting, which is kind of incredible, right? And, and you know, if you're on mechanical 105 or Ultegra right now, like you, you kind of have to ease off the power yeah. a little bit just to allow the chain to shift over without too much kind of crunching. Um, and, and certainly if you're running non-Shimano chain rings, it can be slightly... You know, it might not always shift if you haven't quite got it set up perfectly. But I, I just found that every time you press the button, it just jammed the chain onto the front <laughs> onto the front chain ring without kind of you know much crunching or anything. It just it just it's all very smooth. It happens really really quickly, and and it it just happened you know every single time without problem. It just super super impressive, and and I know, you know, we're kind of tech journalists like us have been sort of been like oh well when will one buy for road take over like it's not going to take over because there's no reason for it because no. what, if front shifting is this good what's the point 
in lim- in limiting yourself to one chain ring at the front. Bold words from Simon Bromley as always. <laughs> <laughs> no, I'm on the same fence, same side of the fence as you there. Alongside Durace, Shimano also launched its new Ultegra group set, which is pretty much just like the new Durace group set. It shares a great deal of the functionality in a slightly heavier, arguably slightly less refined package. Now, this is one we actually haven't had our mitts on yet at all. Um, as with many brands, Shimano has not been immune to the availability issues seen across the industry, and we're yet to uh, have our grubby mitts on that one. But, you know, Altegro, oh, sorry, DI2 only for Altegro, quite a bold move for Shimano. Yeah, definitely. And I, I, I'd be worried if that was a, a permanent decision. Mm. That, seemed, that would seem a shame because an Altegra mechanical group set was always the kind of, you know, the kind of, Racers, a racer on a budget's choice, right? Mm. That was what I always had when I was uh, racing road bikes and things like that. Maybe it's less of an issue now because Shimano 105 is so good, mm. but it, it certainly means that the price point for Altegra is now that much higher. But as you say, you know, it's it's in performance wise, I we haven't tested it yet, but given going on the last generation of Altegra oh, Duro yeah. it's going to be basically exactly the same plus 200 grams and half the price. So yeah. You can't really complain. I think the finish doesn't look that exciting, but Shimano likes to do that, right? They like to make the finish of Ultegra look slightly less exciting than that of Dura Ace, but, you know, that doesn't affect how fast you go. Exactly, yeah. I, I, uh, got, the, I got to review the last version of Ultegra when it first launched, and my sort of overriding conclusion on that was like, well, why would you bother with Dura Ace? <laughs> of course, if you want to buy a Dura Ace group set and that makes you happy and tickles your pickle, by all means. But in performance terms, as you say, I fully expect the two will be pretty much entirely comparable. Yeah, that's right. I, I take one thing that actually that I do find slightly strange with the new power meters actually is that they uh, they still require frame magnets, which seems very retrograde from Shimano. And now mm. that's for, uh, it's basically a read switch in order for determining cadence more accurately. And it is a great way to determine cadence because obviously it just records once per revolution, but every other power meter on the market has moved away from that to a more acceler- accelerometer based cadence. And so, um, yeah, having to kind of stick a magnet on your mm. <laughs> your ten thousand pound bike seems a little bit old fashioned, but I think that maybe just speaks to sort of Shimano's design philosophies in general, where they are arguably tend to be more in favour of um, reliability and sort of longevity than weight per se. You know, that's a bit yeah. of a broad generalisation, but I would imagine that guided that decision, maybe. Yeah, you're yeah. probably true. And, and that we, you know, we have seen instances in the past where accelerometer-based power meters can get confused when going over like bumpy roads and things like that. Like, to be honest, I don't really think it's an issue, but it certainly, it does simplify it for a power meter to know that every time it passes a magnet, it's done one revolution. Mm. That is a foolproof way of doing it. Mm. So, well, you know, power meter Bromley over here will bring you the full <laughs> story on Shimano's uh, new Durace power meter down the line. We do have a f- uh, no, we don't have a first ride yet. We will soon have a uh, full review of Durace, probably early in the new year. And of course, if you want to get the full story on all of those group sets, then head to bikegrader.com or the YouTube channel. There's lots and lots and lots and lots and lots on there. And uh, yeah, definitely a tech highlight for the year. And I can't wait to play with it. Next on the list, we have the Scott Spark RC, which is an all-new cross-country bike from the Swiss brand, which was notable by the intense levels of integrated design seen on the bike. Integrated design has been sort of a trend for the last, I don't know, I would say, what, three odd years? It's really been 
how road bikes have been moving in general. But on mountain bikes, this is the sort of first notable, truly mainstream option where we're seeing quite major components integrated within the frame. Now, I should say, of course, Bold, which was recently bought by Scott, did uh, kind of run a similar layout where they integrated the rear shock into the down tube of the frame. But the Scott Spark slightly changes things. Uh, and for me, it was more at the front end of the bike with the clean integration at the cockpit that sort of stood out to me. Uh, we're not going to talk too much about the Scott Spark as neither Simon or I are do Treadington's. <laughs> and we already had a good discussion with that with Alex Evans in a previous edition of the podcast. However, as a talking point, Simon... You had some thoughts on integration in mountain bikes and perhaps why it's taken so long. Yeah, I mean, as for why it's taken so long, obviously, uh, probably Alex Evans is, or Tom Marvin's a better person to ask about that. But I am surprised it has taken so long because, as you say, it's been such a, a strong trend and in road bikes for the past few years. And, you know, many of these manufacturers make both road bikes and mountain mm -hmm. bikes. So it's it's kind of surprising in a sense it's taken so long. You know, Canyon for a long time have kind of carried across integrated stem bar combos from road onto mountain bike but we haven't seen you know full cable integration at the front end yet on mountain bikes as far as i'm aware uh, but this is an interesting point for it to start off where yeah the, the kind of the the shock at the rear is integrated into the frame in a way that you just basically can't see it you can access it via ports you know you know one of the convenient things with carbon is that you can mold it into kind of whatever shape you want so it makes it much easier to create these shapes that can accommodate these various mm. things within it whereas if you know if you were using a kind of aluminium or steel this just it would be, not be so easy well, it's funny you say that simon because there is actually an alloy version of this bike and one of the things i was going to say is that it's actually remarkable that they've managed to uh basically replicate the functionality of the bike in the alloy version yeah so, that is that is impressive it is really like you know there's 26 bikes i think or possibly 24 in the range as a whole and it does cover a broad broad range of um sort of prices and tastes. Uh, there is a trail option as well, which uses a slightly longer fork, slightly rowdier build. But, you know, it's a pretty comprehensive package. And if I was on the market for a cross-country bike, back in my cross-country marathon days, Simon, I think this would be quite high on my list because I think it's a really exciting-looking bike. And, uh, yeah, just very, very cool cutting edge of sort of cross-country tech. Yeah, and I think, you know, just like in road, the kind of, I know, obviously, mountain bike races are raced, at, are raced at slower speeds than on the road, but even at slow speeds, aerodynamics make, you know, make small differences. So anything you can do to kind of, like, clean up the front end or any part of the bike, you know, for the kind of Olympic-level racers like Pidcock, Vanderpool, you know, Yolanda, Yolanda Neff, is mm -hmm. it? Uh, well, it, it, it's, you know, these kind of small margins can make a difference for those people. So yeah, I think the only surprise to me is that it's kind of taken this long to see it. There we go. Perhaps we'll see more integration with mountain bikes in 2022, particularly in the cross-country side. I think that's probably quite a safe bet. And yeah, watch this space for more. If you want to see that bike, again, head to bikegrader.com. Next, we are going to go back briefly to Simon's giant TCR, one of the most popular reviews on site. And I can also say, with my editor's hat on, the largest article <laughs> on the site in terms of uh, length and almost doubled, I would say, with Simon's extensive, thoughtful and engaging replies in the comment section. You already touched on it, Simon, but you've clearly enjoyed having this bike. Have you enjoyed the process of having a long-termer and engaging with our wonderful, beautiful audience? 
Yeah, I, I absolutely did. And as I said at the start, it was um, one of one of my favorite things to have done this year. And, you know, it's a real pleasure of being a kind of cycling industry Illuminati insider um, is that, you, you know, not only do you get a nice bike to ride, but you also get it for a for a whole year. Um, so, yeah, it gave me the opportunity to try it out with different things. You know, I was already familiar with the kind of giant TCR platform, having had a 2009 advanced SL model for a long time. And, and you know, the kind of general philosophy of the frame hasn't changed much since then. So I wasn't expecting it to be night and day different. But there were obviously some differences, like I'd moved from obviously rim brakes on the 2009 TCR to hydraulic disc brakes on the, uh, on the most recent one, which was a first for me because I'd always been you know, using rim brakes before because that's just what I had access mm-hmm. to. Um, so, you know, but that didn't present any, any problems like better braking. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> that, that's a, but there's no, otherwise no issues. I think, you know, one of the things that took up a lot of the uh, word count ended up being the, the wheels uh, and the fact that Giant had moved to hookless rims on their latest generation of wheels. Now, you know, hookless rims basically... They're like standard clincher wheels, but they don't have the little bead hooks on the top of the rims that hold the tire in place. Instead, you have to use tubeless ready tires. And with giant wheels, you have to use tires that they have specifically safety tested and approved. And the tire is basically held onto the rim just by the kind of force of the the non-stretchy mm-hmm. tire bead holding it on. So as as you can kind of like surmise from that it it does present some potential safety implications but the kind of reason they've done it is because it's easier to manufacture a, a yeah. hookless rim out of carbon because you know alloy rims are extruded carbon rims are molded and so a straight wall is much easier to mold than a very thin hook so that's fine but yeah I, the, the sticking point for me is i'm a, I'm a very tight i'm a very much a tire nerd and so the kind of Never would have guessed. Yeah, the, the 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 problem of having a kind of list of say ten or twelve tires, all of which are, are made by Giant, and you know, without wanting to be too harsh, none of which have kind of tested that well in kind of independent rolling resistant testing. My kind of concerns were that uh, you know the bike would be losing out so much in performance terms from not being able to run a kind of you know a Continental GP five thousand, yeah. for example, or you know your favorite kind of clincher tire and a latex inner tube. Now, when I first got the bike, Giant kind of promised that there would be, you know, an updated tire list and they were working with all the manufacturers to improve things. And progress was, you know, obviously hindered by various global pandemics and and other things like that. So that was a problem. But Continental have just released an updated version of the GP5000, which is, they say, compatible with hookless rims, but Giant have not done their testing yet. Mm. So strictly you know you can't use that tire and if you have to have an accident you know you're being kind of like giant wouldn't sort of take responsibility for anything that went wrong yet so it it is a really tricky one and yeah i and i you know i expounded many 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 words on my experiences with this now sorry just on on. word count um normally if i send a a brief out to a freelancer or a writer on team i'd say a word count for a good chunky review maybe about 1500 words. I think that's probably what we're aiming for typically on Bike Radar. How many words do you think you've written on the giant TCR that are on the site? <laughs> I don't know. I would I oh. take a guess. I would say it's probably going to be about four and a half thousand, maybe more. I can confirm <laughs> the word count for your giant TCR long term review is 9,000. 
134 words. Is that including is that including comments? Uh, no, that doesn't include comments. That's, that's the word count. I'm viewing it live wow. right now in WordPress, which is, in fact, a good solid 3,000 words longer than my pathetic art school dissertation. <laughs> well, there you go. But there was a lot to talk about. It's a good read. I'm, I'm making fun of you, Simon. It's I know. A very, very and that was a, that was a year's worth of work. Mm-hmm. It's um, very. It's a good read, and it is worth reading in full because it sort of it's a deep dive into the unique mind of Simon Bromley, but also, you know, a kind of stellar example of how we should scrutinize bikes. Now, I don't want everyone writing nine thousand words on bikes, but it is a great, yeah, a great shining example of wonderful cycling journalism. That's very kind. I think. You know, as you kind of mentioned earlier as well, it was a, one one of the things with a long term review bike as well is that we get to kind of engage with the audience as well, and so you hear from people who have maybe bought the same bike as you and, mm-hmm. and their experience with it. And it is safe to say that you know if you don't care about marginal gains and performance mm-hmm. and things like that, then you might well be just perfectly happy with the stock tires that come with the bike. Yeah, you know, yeah, maybe they're five or six watts slower than the best tires out there, but. You know, if you're just having fun, just going out and riding your bike, then you really probably don't care. But not everyone is like that. And then I and I think, you know, for me right now, I'm still kind of on the on the on the fence with hookless. And I think I don't want to reduce my options mm-hmm. when it comes to tires. But for the majority of people out there, probably not a problem. But it it it's safe to say that there are different opinions and it, and I do, as you say, I do enjoy engaging with our audience. I find that a really, you know, both in terms of often maybe they'll have just a different perspective, but also, you know, maybe offering corrections and things like that. So I, I find it a really good space to do that kind yeah. of thing. And one that, you know, as if you're listening to this podcast and you haven't left a comment on bikeradar.com, I would encourage you to do so because, you know, I think engaging with our audience is something that we should do more of. Absolutely. And one final note on the TCR. Generally speaking, when we have, in fact, not gen- whenever we have review bikes, they always go back to the manufacturer, you know, otherwise we'd end up with a shed of thousands of bikes. Um, mm. But they always tend to go back. But you, in fact, bought your TCR at the end of this test period. I did, yeah. Because obviously it was a great bike. And as someone who is, uh, you know, part of the cycling industry, I, I also... I needed a platform for which I could test things going forward, like wheels and stuff like that. And if, you know, all the wheels that are being made these <laughs> days are a disc brake. So if I if I had only rim brake bikes at home, I wasn't going to be testing that many wheels. And yes, of course, I could have called in, you know, various other bikes over the course. But it's it, I really what I really wanted was to have a kind of consistent platform that offered the ability to interchange parts very, very easily to do lots of testing going forward. And I think like the TCR is a great bike for that because it's a very kind of neutral bike. It doesn't have kind of overly integrated parts at the front end or anything like that. So so working on it is incredibly simple and swapping in and out different wheels, different handlebars, different bits and all that stuff is very, very easy. So yeah, I am now the proud owner of a TCR disc. Rather than, and as well as a TCR rim brake, and I will just be, I'm, you know, I'm just, I'm a TCR man through and through. <laughs> yes, very much. So, again, go look at Bike Radar for Simon's full review. It's a great piece. You will have seen if you've watched any of our other videos as well on narrow bars or any of Simon's other various testing bits from this year. It's uh, perhaps after my surly steamroller, the bike most, or my, maybe my tandem actually, the most often featured bike <laughs> on Bike Radar. Um, on to our next one, we're going to talk very briefly around Olympic tech. 
safe to say we had quite an exciting year for um, for cycling tech at the Olympics, as well as some truly excellent racing. Um, all of the content from the Olympics is ta- tagged up as Tokyo 2020 on site, if you'd like to look back there. But there were a few tech stories I would like to go over. First off, though, what else could it be, Simon? But the shin tape used by the Danish team. One of the most popular stories on uh, site as well as our social channels and just kind of had that really magic balance of a bit of like, what? What are they doing? <laughs> and also just like really highlights the extremes teams will go to for those absolutely vanishingly, well, I say vanishingly, very small gains. What did you think of that whole episode? I thought it was really, really funny just because obviously it it kind of coined the term shin gate and it was uh it made the kind of national press as well it's mm-hmm. like cycling went mainstream for a day <laughs> and um you know i think it's it's kind of it's kind of nice these days that cycling scandals are around people putting plasters on their legs <laughs> rather, <laughs> rather than being you know police raids for illicit materials and sort of things like that so um that was quite nice but yeah i i essentially what what they were doing was they were trying to kind of Danish uh, team pursuit team were trying to replicate the effect of a longer aero overshoe by using uh, kind of cotton fabric, fab- sort of fabric like skinny. Yeah, yeah it's like fabric, cotton, plast, like the kind of yeah. fabric, cotton backed plaster, and they're just putting it up their shins, and the essentially the edges, the kind of the hard edges of that tape would have caused. Uh, the kind of airflow over their legs to to trip from laminar to turbulent flow at the kind of right point and reduce drag. You know, when you see aero socks, which are kind of striped up the kind of, uh, you know, ankle, mm-hmm. that's the same effect. But the UCI rules limit sock height to the kind of midpoint between your calf and uh, midpoint between your ankle and your knee. And so this was a kind of creative reading of the rule books to <laughs> to get around that. Now, of course, it was a very creative reading and, and they shouldn't have been allowed to take to the start line yeah. because the UCI rule book also uh, outlaws any kind of extra devices or kind of clothing specifically designed for aerodynamic purposes, which is a really silly rule because obviously they all wear aero helmets, yeah. Yeah. aero skin suits and all of that stuff. But this this was quite clearly... You know, they they didn't have they hadn't all cut their legs in exactly the same place <laughs> and, and needed to use plasters. This was this was clearly intentionally added as an aerodynamic aid and therefore, you know, was against the rules. And so as the kind of UCI clarified because other teams complained, they weren't able to use it going forward. I think it kind of took away in a little bit from from the kind of race. Mm-hmm. Uh, but uh, at the, you know the fact that they didn't win using it kind of saved any blushes. Yeah, I think yeah, from yeah, the UCI yeah. in the end it was you know obviously Italy who won thanks to a mammoth turn oh from Filippo Garner in the last lap. But um, but yeah, like the Olympic track tech was you know beyond just you know one pound shin tape. It it was stunning, and it's always interesting to see what manufacturers come up with when they have a very narrow design very mm. narrow design parameters and money is essentially no object yeah yeah i'd love to see you on one simon see whether we can get you up to uh, a <laughs> gb track squad standards or some expensive <laughs> kit any other kind of um tech highlights for you maybe one more one more kind of juicy uh, nugget from the olympics and track 
So I think it was really interesting to see um, the Hope HBT mm-hmm. in action. I, I think the fact that, you know, GB didn't do that well probably isn't anything to do with the bike. No. <laughs> I, I think they just, for whatever reason, they didn't quite have the kind of athletes uh, to compete with with Italy, with Australia, with Denmark. And and that's fine. You know, I think they're in a kind of transitionary period. But the Hope HBT, you know, for those who haven't seen it, is... Uh, a track bike with a, a, a radically wide fork and radically wide seat stays. And the idea is that the fork legs break the air over the rider's legs behind it, and then the seat stays are placed in the wake of the rider's legs. So it, it's all about managing aerodynamics in a kind of very non-conventional way. Now, from the people I've spoken to, this is a really kind of low-your situation mm. uh, bike where it works as long as the wind is coming at you basically straight on and so if you took if you were to put this on the road where there's kind of crosswinds and things like that the kind of the effect of the legs the the legs of the fork breaking the breaking the airflow over your legs doesn't work okay in quite the same way and so it'd be interesting to see if anyone ports this over mm-hmm. to the road in quite as uh dynamic or radical way hope have haven't they? they've made a time trial prototype based on the they have yeah. yeah and so it would be interesting to see how that would test against, say, like, you know, a Factor Hanzo TT yeah. bike or a Specialized Shiv. I imagine, you know, I imagine a lot of companies when, you know, when that bike was announced and when it's raised, a lot of uh, bike designers and companies went, oh, and then sat down at their computers mm. and ran the CFD simulations. And so it would be fascinating mm. if anyone does anything like that. But I just want to kind of celebrate the... Uh, the kind of the idea of doing something differently, yeah. basically, because we, you know, the, the UCI rulebook is as it is. And so we often see, we often think, well, we've kind of come to the pinnacle of all bikes look the same. And this is what a UCI bike looks like. But actually this kind of showed how much space there is within the rules to make a bike that looks completely different from everything else. So hats off to the design to the designers yeah i can't say i shed a tear for the uh, loss of the iconic uk sport track bike which has been seen for a very <laughs> long time probably one of the uglier bikes out there i dare say one of the worst stem head tube combos going in cycling so yeah r.i.p to that and hello to the the hope lotus bike for now Moving on for the olympics i would like to talk about sorry we're on quite a road uh, hit at the minute but the ribble ultra a genuinely, I dare say in some areas, quite groundbreaking bike from the UK-based brand and one that you, Simon, had your little grubby mitts on for a day in the salubrious surroundings of Bristol's Castle Park. What's the key story with this bike and what do you think about it? So the key story with the Ribble Ultra is the handlebar, which uh, rather than kind of having um, very thin, narrow aero profile tops like you would see on a normal aero handlebar has uh, a kind of like wing shaped Mm. bulges on the top uh, which Ribble calls wake generator bulges and they're just designed to you know a little bit like with the Hope HPT designed to break the airflow over the rider for a net drag reduction compared to say using a standard aero road handlebar and and ribble explained it to us that you know you use a standard aero road handlebar yes the, you know the air passes very nicely over an aero road handlebar then it hits the rider yeah and that causes drag because obviously the rider is a bluff body it's it, they're not aerodynamically optimized but they contend that using a handlebar which kind of disrupts the airflow 
over the rider that doing it further upstream like that leads to a overall drag reduction mm -hmm. compared to a standard road handlebar now the rest of the bike is kind of typical of of kind of you know modern ultra aero road bikes with kind of large cam tail mm -hmm. aerofoil tubes a kind of wide fork that you know, obviously the legs are, are wide in the sense that they they're placed away from the kind of wheel which i, I you know, from talking to people is is typically used to make the mm -hmm. kind of the fork wheel agnostic so it doesn't matter <laughs> what kind of wheel you're using in there because the fork legs won't interact with the rim but they're not so wide that like on the hope yeah. hbt it would interact with the with the rider's legs um but you know also because it's from ribble who are a british based brand kind of heavily focused on making you know value bikes it's actually a very cheap bike relatively speaking yeah, you know yeah, we've yeah, had yeah. a lot of bikes launched this year that 12 are 12 13, 13 yeah. 14, you know fourteen thousand pounds or whatever and this one tops out at less than eight thousand pounds which you know again not cheap at all mm -hmm. but almost half the price of a top end bike from from some other brands yeah. and and i think you know if you were to get ultegra or 105 then you know it, it's possible to get this bike much cheaper and so it was yeah it's really exciting because i don't think we you, you know we love ribble as a brand but i don't think we expected this kind of bold technological move from them and again it, it you know whether it works or not kind of remains to be mm -hmm. seen it, you know is it a bit like the hope hbt maybe it will be really good in certain situations might not be so good in others it's kind of like it's hard to test this stuff obviously i know people will want us to why haven't you taken this bike to a wind tunnel to do it but actually like getting access even for even for you know influential people like us getting access to <laughs> mm -hmm. to wind tunnels and expert testing and all this sort of stuff isn't that easy so yeah. you know we'll, we'll kind of do what we can but it might it it will be difficult to ascertain how much difference it's making i have to say i think you're slightly underselling it in terms of the um the frame shape being conventional because i mean honestly that down tube is wild it looks like a pack of crisps that's been put in a fire like it is mad the, the, it, from the top of the head tube it, it's quite heavily sculpted around the the back of the head tube and it you know almost blends in fully with the fork then goes into a very very narrow skinny section about i don't know two-thirds of the way up the down tube then flares dramatically near the bottom i mean it is pretty unusual yeah, I suppose I suppose so. It it's kind of for me it's quite reminiscent of the System 6. Mm. So which is, you know, uh, has been on the market for a while. So but you're but you're right. Like it, it is still very dramatic the way it, it kind of mm. goes from being a very very narrow section at the top to kind of flaring around the the bottle cage area. Mm. And obviously Ribble have said that they've designed this, you know, for use with bottles in mind, which is always a smart move in my opinion because you drink you know, water on bikes. We we want to drink water. We want to carry water with us. So so that's always you know that's that's always good to see, and um, yeah. It's, this is so. But yeah, this is definitely one that we're very very keen to get our hands on. And and Ribble have promised us that they will let us get our hands on one mm -hmm. at some point. So uh, yeah, keep your eyes out on BikeRadar.com for a full review. One final point on this. Years ago, I remember talking with I think it was John Woodhouse who used to be on our um, tech team. And we're talking about kind of uh, trends with geometry and mountain bikes. And he made the very pertinent point that, you know, if we look at an entry-level mountain bike, with cheap components and a regular aluminium frame, if you make the geometry of that frame good, basically, you know, kind of go with trends and make it handle better, that doesn't cost any more for a manufacturer than making a frame with bad geometry. 
And I think looking at something like the Ribble, of course, we're not, I'm not being daft. £8,000 is a huge amount of money. But I think it illustrates that, you know, Ribble will be having this manufactured either on contract or in their own factory. I don't know how it works for them. But ultimately, making a frame that has these wacky shapes and, you know, is aerodynamic, in theory, apart from the design cost, the actual manufacturing cost, surely doesn't cost any more than making a conventional carbon bike because, you know, once the molds are made, that's it. The bike's done. So I, th- I think it illustrates that, yeah, like the cussing edge will always be expensive, but kind of artificially inflating uh, the price of bikes because you're selling this concept of the cutting edge is perhaps a bit mischievous at times. Yeah, it it, it is really tricky to say, isn't it? And, and I know that, you know, without wanting to kind of defend bike brands, like, you know, making high-end road bikes, like, it, like there's not a huge market for them. So they can't yeah. be, it, it can't be a madly profitable business. But then some of them obviously are. I mean, we know that obviously, you know, Pinarello got mm. bought out by some, you know, wealthy investment groups a few years ago. So obviously there is some money in it. Um, but I, I think there is, I think, you know, probably a case of that, you know, Ribble is a well-known brand within the UK and very well respected, but they don't have the same kind of cachet as a Specialized does or, mm. you know, a Colnago does simply because, you know, they have, they don't have the kind of world tour history that those brands do. And I, and I think, you know, if, if you're specialized or something, you're trading on that grand tour winning vibe, aren't you? <laughs> and, and so whether, you know, this is, this is something that we, we often see in, in comment sections, oh, well, they're all the same bike underneath, but actually like maybe they are, maybe they aren't. You, you don't really know. And unless you were to kind of, you know, saw a bike in half, it, you can't really see yeah. how the carbon has been laid up. We don't, you know, unless you're an expert in carbon fiber, you know, the difference between say, you know, TCR advanced SL and a TCR advanced pro, for example, like the TCR advanced SL uses more expensive carbon fiber and is laid up by robots these days. Oh. I know. Whereas the advanced pro uses slightly less expensive carbon fiber and is laid up by hand. Mm-hmm. So yeah, you're kind of it. Yeah. You, you're paying for these, for these big differences, but, but for sure, like as in terms of what makes the bike fast, if the, if the shapes of this bike are well optimized, it is potentially just as fast as a bike that costs mm. four or five thousand pounds more. It doesn't matter what the name on the down tube is if 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 the bike is shaped well mm-hmm. and it feels good to ride and it has you say it has good geometry and good components. So you know, like that's why I still ride my Planet X Exocet TT bike. You know, I picked up that frame for less than five hundred pounds in. 2014 2015 or whatever and yeah i could go spend a big pile of cash and get something marginally faster but yeah. fundamentally it's fast enough for us Fun- yeah fundamentally like it, it, they're kind of it's not going to make a huge difference i don't think so it's it's a fair point and, and but yeah I, I i don't think too many people will be looking at ribble and thinking oh we should cut our prices <laughs> <laughs> all right moving on um we've got a buffet of content to choose from simon i've taken the pick so far what would you pick out as one of your remaining highlights all right well let's talk about the internal cable routing has gone too far piece because that's kind of you know on on the same kind of line as as aero bikes i think it, it was it was funny in a way because we i'd already written this column and then the specialized tarmac SL7 recall happened and just kind of out of kind of, you know, coincidence, coincidence, 
we had this column kind of waiting that suddenly became a little bit more timely. And so I think that's part of the reason why it did well. But I think it was interesting to note that, you know, as someone who really likes aero road bikes, you know, it would be, I think a lot of people would assume that I'm completely in favor of things like fully internal cable routing and that sort of thing. But the column was kind of saying that I am in favor of it in the right situation for things like aero bikes, time trial bikes, you know, race bikes, things where every second counts. But but otherwise, I'm actually not in favor of it. And I think if you're just, you know, if you're doing gravel or you're a commuter or you're just doing general road riding, like I, I'm not convinced the kind of marginal benefits of hiding every cable actually no. make enough difference. And actually, like the downsides of it, like increased service complexity kind of you know the fact that if you're running mechanical group sets the shifting is going to be very very tricky to set up correctly like these things are things that you're going to experience much more than just saving two or three watts at 45 kilometers per hour yeah this was kind of inspired by it was the new scott uh added gravel bike is that right. correct yeah. Yeah. yeah and it was a kind of a very very cheap one nice looking bike mm. with i think it was tiagra possibly sora actually. It, was, it was even worse it was tornay tornay my god i know who rides that <laughs> well yeah but you know I but know. there's nothing wrong with tornay no. it's just that in order to get the best out of a group set like that yeah. you don't want to be running tight cable bends no. through through a handlebar through a headset all that sort of stuff. And it just seems wild that yeah. on a bike targeted at the kind of entry level user, you would be adding this level of complexity to it. And I understand that, you know, for Scott, as you say, like they just want to make one frame set hmm. and have it use the same parts all the way across so that they can kind of economies of scale it and, and put these bikes out for cheaper. But it's not, I just don't see the advantage for the end user. I agree. And many of our readers also agreed. I think it's, you know, if you're listening from the industry, it always strikes me as such a low-hanging fruit. And I know it maybe goes against sort of brand messaging in general. You're sort of contradicting yourself. But I think there's a huge, huge open goal waiting to be made from, you know, a big brand to make an affordable aluminium disc brake, thread bottom bracket, externally cable routed, nice road bike with okay geometry, and decent tire clearances and mudguard mounts. Now, those bikes do, of course, exist, but they're not very well marketed and they're not like at the cutting edge. But I, I just, I really think that would go down an absolute treat from one of the big brands. What do you reckon? Yeah, I totally agree. And I think the kind of success of the specialized AFOS and then their new... To yes, the Crux. New, yeah. yeah, exactly. The new Crux gravel bike, like they have been insanely popular. And I think, as you say, that appetite for sim simple bikes is there and, and and i think as you say it kind of it's i think it is a problem with marketing because i think these bikes do exist you know mm. like matthew reviewed a trek Amanda alr a few years ago and that was yeah. a very popular bike and there there is now a kind of disc version of that and it's kind of that's the bike you're talking about but trek doesn't really shout about it you know they don't make that big of a fuss out of it and that's you know partly because gravel bikes are the, are yeah, kind yeah, of the yeah. new trendy thing but there is a hundred percent i think if if, if you there's a habit with kind of cheaper bikes to kind of cut corners and, and give a kind of less fancy paint job yeah, and, and things like that. And, and if you just, like, there's nothing wrong with alloy bikes. Like, they can be fantastic. But if you give it a, a lovely fancy paint job, mm -hmm. plus, as you say, the kind of sensible stuff that, that makes it, you know, hidden mudguard mounts that make it, like, you don't have to see them. But when you want mudguards, you can have them. Like, all of these things make loads of sense. And they, I think they would be insanely popular. Better still... One of the brands that we've uh, 
reviewed quite a few times this year, this year you have rather, um, Orbea. Mm. They offer through their Mayo program um, custom paint jobs for free, essentially, and the ability to kind of um, customize component choices. I think a Mayo available alloy bike, just as I described, I think would um, you'd get yourself into a frenzy, Simon. Definitely, yeah. And and I, you go back to the Ribble Ultra. One of one of the things that they offer is something like that, like a kind of custom yeah. color scheme. It costs a little bit more, but you know, it's the stuff that makes you happy. It's the stuff that makes you happy for sure. And yeah, you know, we 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 we've kind of seen things with this, like with the kind of return to threaded bottom brackets on a lot of bikes as well. Uh, that people they want to be able to work on their bikes. You know, I like the kind of integration things, and and it, it works for performance road bikes and time trial bikes because integrating things together. You know, designing wheels with a frame, designing yeah. tires with wheels, designing handlebars with frames. All of these things, like the, these marginal gains, do add up on the margins but for people who are not racing on the margins mm. they just it, it, you know if you can't replace a brake cable or something like you know our dearly now departed joe knowledge <laughs> you know I, I i i hear on the grapevine that he had a terrible time replacing a cable recently and that wasn't even an integrated cable so you know imagine if, <laughs> <laughs> imagine if joe had to replace an integrated cable god it gets so frustrated i used to live with joe I used to live with Joe and um, I remember watching him once try to set up a gimbal and the incandescent rage he managed to wind himself up into was pretty extraordinary. The thought of him trying to shove a cable through a dodgy tight bend in a headset, God, yeah. kill him. And my point is not that, you know, Joe's a naff mechanic. I've, no, I've no idea. But is that he has, you know, a family, a really busy job. He just doesn't have time to do all of this yeah. stuff. So you know when it comes to his free time for riding bikes he wants to be able to ride the bike mm. not actually like have to take it to the shop to get oh, i need to get this cable like faffed with because the brakes aren't shifting properly or i can't the brakes aren't shifting yeah well you know <laughs> <laughs> the gears aren't shifting properly or the brakes aren't really the brakes feel spongy or yeah. you know something like that so you know in his racing days he would have had as i'm sure many of our dear listeners know joe would have had the the fanciest carbon parts and you know mm. all all of those things but but now you know that's not what everyone's looking for yeah that's the kind of overriding point it's just not what everyone's looking for and i know we want to like market tour de france bikes to everyone but like no, we don't want to market bikes we want to test them independently no i don't mean we but like i mean sort of the cycling industry <laughs> yeah. in general wants to market tour de france yeah. bikes to everyone because like you know that's sexy and it, the fast mm. is sexy and whatever but like I, I, there is, as as you've kind of said, an enduring appetite for simple road bikes. And, and I really hope we'll see more of that going forward. Me too. I think, well, that's probably enough. There's plenty more and there's lots of roundups and site gear of the year. There's videos. There's a whole lot. We're also going to have our tech predictions coming out and uh, a few other bits on the podcast in the coming weeks. Simon, is there any other highlights you'd like to pick out from next, uh, last year or what are your kind of big goals for next year? I have not made too many goals for next year. I'd like to go sub nineteen at, at the the Chew Valley Lake Time Trial, and I keep telling, I keep saying this on the, on the podcast, so I better make it happen. Um, I'd love to see it. <laughs> it's not a particularly impressive time for those listening. That the course record is held by Max Stedman, and he's his. It's like sort of seventeen and a half minutes. And he is also a professional cyclist. Yeah, so he does have a lot more time than me to train, and that's the only that's the only reason. Literally the only reason. <laughs> <laughs> um, 
so yeah so it'll be more of that like i i think you know going forward into next year you, you know hopefully i would like to bring bike radar listeners uh, and readers more kind of data-led testing so that that's mm. what i'll be working on um yeah i like there have been I w- we won't do any more highlights because i'm just going to name more of my articles and that feels a little bit selfish what about you though jack have you got any goals any more favorites from this year uh crack four thousand instagram followers i reckon that's a big one for me <laughs> what are you on now I actually don't know. Oh, three, don't know. three eight, something like that. Three eight seven two, something. Something like that. Like that. <laughs> it's 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 a, a achievable goal. Okay. Uh, riding wise, ooh, I'd like to enter another mountain bike race next year. Okay. I'd like to do that. I haven't done a mountain bike race since Joe left. Pretty much, he's not kicking me up the arse to do that anymore. Mm. Um, and I'd like to do some time trialing with you. I do enjoy that. That's very good fun. Great. I enjoy just the the fun of going out and doing a little race of an evening. It builds some structure to my week. And I would like to do some more long rides, do some really, really, really good rides this summer on my own and with friends, um, just touring, big days out in the sun. Yeah, I want to do more of that this year. And a big tour on the tandem with Laura, that would be nice as well. Lovely. Yeah. Well, looking forward to it. Thank you very much for listening. Again, we are going to have loads of roundups. It's that time of year uh, on the podcast, on the YouTube channel and on the site over the next few weeks. Uh, We hope you've enjoyed listening to the Bike Radar podcast this year. If you haven't already, do give us a a little rating on your favorite podcast platform. Of course, if you think we deserve five stars, please smash it. If you have any questions, we do always look at the comments on bikeradar.com for articles that we've talked about today, as well as the one associated with this podcast. And have a very wonderful Christmas, a happy Hogmanay, and chat in the new year. Simon. Thank you very much. Thanks very much, Jack. Bye. Thank you for listening to the Bike Radar podcast. If you want any more information on what we've been talking about or more news and views on cycling, check out bikeradar.com. Bike Radar.